character doesn't know that they're in a period drama. This is just their world. Well, darling, you don't look as if you've ever worked a day in your life, so uh, I'm going to catch you as one of these kind of shipyard workers. We can get distracted by things that we think other people think are important, and they're not. Just because they're sat on that side of the table doesn't mean that, that they know what they're doing. Danny. Hi, Daniel. What does an Actors Coaching International actor get from working with you? Wow. They get deep levels of growth. They get to learn so much more about themselves and they get to find out so much more about the industry. Why not go to actorscoachinginternational.com for more details? Hi. You're still talking when the recording started. So <laughs> this is good. Well, Jared McCarthy, you're in the room with us. How are you doing today? Matthew Harris, I am ecstatic to be doing my first ever podcast with In the Room. Absolutely. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here. And you see, this might have a slightly different flavor, this podcast, as um, Jared is Christian's housemate, his wonderful housemate, and um, he informs me that um, Christian never does any of the washing up, never does any of the cleaning. And, That's a lie. Um, it's a lie? Well, mm, I don't know. Well, absolute biblical truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, also very weird, with, like me hearing him being called Christian, because we, we all have little nicknames for each other in, 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 our, in our house. And I do don't you know? call him Christian, no. Oh, right. Anyway, my, my nickname's probably too rude to share on here, so we'll That's... move swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move swiftly on, AC. Uh, Jared is our first recording of Series 3, and um, he's been a bit of our guinea pig dealing with camera issues this morning, as my camera kept turning off, and I was going mental down the microphone. I didn't think these two could hear me, and they were just laughing away, doing little <laughs> impressions of my voice. Do either of you want to do a little impression of what I was doing with that, with, with that camera? I think we should do a little one where who's got the best impression. So I'll go with, uh, oh, my God, the camera's not working. No, That's mine. Working fine when I was doing my OnlyFans this week. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, you see, we actually warned Jared before we started recording to tone down the sexual nature of his natural conversation. And within two minutes, that, com that comes up. How I make my money is none of your business, Jared. But if anyone wants to, no one's going to sign up to my OnlyFans unless they like someone that looks like a. You have like to a... plug it forward slash sexy little chops. <laughs> I don't believe this. Your ends meet Matthew is entirely your own business. I am too stunned to speak. The fact I should have got you to sign a document to not call me that in this podcast. And we're talking about funny nicknames inside their household. This is one I've met Jared once. Oh, I mean, granted, it wasn't so. I mean, it was in Soho, so I kind of shot myself in the foot there, meeting Jared McCarthy in Soho. But yeah, uh, this is a rubbish start to a podcast. Everyone's turning off. If this is if this is in the final cut, you might as well stop listening now because it went to absolute shit. Anyway, we'll get on with the questions. I'll hand over to the wonderful Christian Lee Smith to ask the first question to you. I don't know about the wonderful, but we'll kick off with uh, G. How do actors get in the room? It's weird because I ha I actually have been thinking about this um, all week because I think it's very easy to kind of put that as the kind of job description of your agent and go, oh, well, it's it's my agent's job to get me in the room and then and then I take over from there and show what I can do. But I think as, as actors, we kind of have... A responsibility to ourselves to kind of do as much as we can to kind of take up space within the industry so that people that that you haven't even necessarily worked with kind of know that you exist which is very obviously different from when from when I left drama school in like 2002 but I think graduates now and younger actors have got opportunities with social media and Instagram and TikTok and all these other things that I'm not even quite sure how they work to just kind of spark an interest that makes someone either a producer, or a casting director, or a writer, or a director, or whoever go, oh, 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 that's interesting. I like, I like whatever vibe they've got going on. So let's kind of meet. And I think I also think the industry now has changed so much that because everyone is so kind of open to conversation and debate and 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 having a chat, that I think it's much easier now to kind of see 
someone who works on a project that you like and and find their contact details and just drop them an email and go, hey, I, I saw this show that you worked on on the BBC or Netflix or whatever it is and, and go, I really, really loved it. Here's my here's my show reel. Here's my agent. If you ever have five minutes for a coffee or a chat or whatever or a Zoom, I mean, everyone was doing Zooms during lockdown. Then I'd love to meet you. And I think now more so than ever, lots of people are really open to and to like receiving those kind of emails and messages. So I don't think it is now just the responsibility of the agent. I think there's a lot that we can do as actors and and the like. I think what what I found out is sometimes if you don't get an immediate response from said agent or casting director, you think, oh, it, it no one ever read that, no one ever saw that. But the amount that actually happens without you getting anything back immediately, that audition could come a year down the line from that email that you sent because the memories that these people have of just, you know, a new breakdown comes through in their offices and they go, oh, shit, that person that emailed me literally a year ago and it can just pop into their head like that. Yes, it's unlikely, but I think that immediacy that we all crave these days kind of clouds our judgment a bit when we're trying to communicate with people. Especially casting directors. I mean, there was one that I bumped into. I mean, I I have met her twice. One was for a job that she cast me in in 2010. So that was 12 years ago. And then after that job, she brought me in for another one. And that must have been 2012. It couldn't have been any later than 2012. And I bumped into her in in town last week and I looked at her now my memory granted is shocking and I looked at her and I was like I'm not quite sure if that's her because I haven't seen her in 10 years and I don't want to make the mistake of going over and going oh hey and they're going I have no idea who you think I am but she looked at me and then made it obvious that she she knew who who I was and remembered me and then I got, but of course, but that that is your job to kind of be aware of the people that you've worked with and the actors that you've met and keep them in the back of your mind. So I think, we, yeah, it's, it's exactly as you say, Matt. We kind of go, oh my God, I, have, I haven't heard anything back in a week or a month or six months or whatever. Doesn't mean that they don't, they don't know who you are or they've forgotten about you. Yeah, more absolutely. often than not, it's the total opposite. It just means that, okay, it's filed. They've done their job. They've, they've watched the show where they filed it. And if, if and when something comes up, then normally they, they'll be in touch, fingers crossed. Sure thing. Well, let's take things back a little bit. We are always interested here about the start of our guest's career. Now, what My brought origin you to story. The, your origin story, the prequel <laughs> to the G that we have today. How did your career begin? How did you get into this industry? No one in my family works in the industry. So it's not as if I come from like parents who are actors or designers or directors or any, n- n- nothing. Everyone in my in my family is like normal. Um, and I grew up in Belfast doing lots of youth theatre. And it wasn't a decision it, that I made. The youth theatre that I worked with was predom- they predominantly did musicals. So that just kind of was the path that I kind of fell into. And I loved it, obviously. And I and once it became apparent that you could do it as a career, I kind of thought, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to move to London and train and, and, and do musicals. So I, I did that. I, I moved over to Epsom and I, I went to, to Lane Theatre Arts for a couple of years. And then I graduated and I did a couple of musicals. And yeah, it was very kind of straightforward, but without much thought. And it wasn't until I was in the industry already that I kind of thought, okay, what do I really want to do? Now, seriously think about it, because so far it's just been, oh, my friends that I do youth theatre with, they're going to drama school and they're moving to London. And it just kind of seemed, well, if you want to continue the kind of the craft, that's what that's what I'm just going to have to move with my friends. And then suddenly I'd kind of graduated and I was doing jobs that I had always wanted to do since I was 14 or 15. But by then I was in my mid twenties and I was like, okay, what? have a real serious look at yourself. What really floats your boat and what do you want to do? And then that's when things kind of started to go off in different directions. But how I got into the industry was very kind of straightforward auditioned for drama school, moved over to London, graduated, and was lucky enough to sign with a brilliant agent who really, really got me as a person. Um, we got on so well, and he, he understood everything that, that I wanted to do at the time, and really, really helped me and guided me, which I think is very fortunate, because I think any actor who's graduates when they're 20 or 21 and doesn't really have a clue about anything yet, needs that kind of guidance from their agent and I was very lucky to have an agent called Shane Collins sign me when I left college and he's still a a very very dear friend of mine but he's a brilliant agent and and yeah so so I I, still to this day I owe a lot to him 
And then you uh, obviously went on to Hollyoaks, which is a massive part. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, you got a long list of credits, Titanic, Blood and Steel, Vikings, Nightingale Falling, Call the Midwife, Belfast. And so much of your work as an actor is set in the past period dramas or even further back. Um, firstly, what do you think makes an actor castable for that kind of work? And then secondly, how much use do you think your performance is working on a period set being in a full costume? I genuinely don't think it's any different. I think the design of the project, whether or not that's the, if it's if it's set in 1920s, like for example, Titanic or Vikings and God knows what century that was set in. My job is the same. Get the script, find out what the character wants, find out what the story is, where I fit in in the story. And to me, there's no difference. I mean, everybody has a different process, but I don't kind of think, oh, because this piece is now set in 1920, my process is any different. It's exactly the same. And it only becomes different when you have clothes that you wouldn't normally wear. And I think that's about it. For Titanic example, when I was working on that, I remember, and again, and it was the casting director who I was just talking about who I bumped into. When I met her for the job, and it was obviously set in 1910 in Belfast where Titanic was built. So there was like huge, huge amounts of, of jobs for young guys in their 20s that were working in the shipyards and, and all of this. And I met her and very quickly she went, well, darling, you don't look as if you've ever worked a day in your life. So I can't really <laughs> cast you as one of these kind of shipyard workers. And and she wasn't lying. Let's be honest. Still to this day. <laughs> and and she then found me a role in the in the show who was the son of one of the board members of Harland and Wolf. And and I played this character called Ashley, who was very very upper class, very very posh, very very everything that I'm not. I mean, I grew up in a working working class family from West Belfast, and I remember being on set and finding out that there is a proper way that posh people eat soup. Well, I had no idea about this. Um, <laughs> he was just picking but, up the bowl and pouring. Yeah, it down well, it wasn't <laughs> quite that, but it was like. Um, so yeah, it's to me, it's it's like the job is exactly the same. We need the costumes are different. You think people are tempted to overcomplicate it so they think oh i'm in a period drama i've got a character's name that you'd never have these days i'm speaking about things that we wouldn't do in modern day and i need to do the research and i need to work on how this person would they just the fact that it's a period drama especially if it's something at scale intimidates someone into almost going away from the basics yeah and i think then the temptation is just to start doing period drama acting yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of go, what the hell is that? What does that mean? And I think the, the buzzword at the minute, rightfully so in the industry is authenticity. Even in a period drama where you might be wearing huge big wigs and hats and corsets and whatever else that they've put you in, your job is to still to find the absolute truth and authenticity within this character and what they're going through and thinking and feeling. And what you can't resort to is go, oh, because I'm wearing this costume, I need to start speaking in this way and walking in this way and doing this. The question is going to be, why are you doing that? Because you, the actor, are in a period drama, but the character doesn't know that they're in a period drama. This is just their world. And if we start getting into thinking the wrong things, it's just going to be crap. You can sometimes see it, especially in a self-tape thing, when you don't have the costumes and stuff. I think there's a temptation to overcompensate and then you end up in that period drama acting, but you're mm. not even in the costume. You've got a plain wall and you look like a right knob doing it then. Yeah, <laughs> and it's... and and I mean, Matt, and like, I've obviously made the... Like, I've made the mistakes, of course I have, and I've worked with actors who, when I'm coaching them at the minute, like, will go, oh, gee, it's for a... So the next minute, it's like, they're spending so much time slicking their hair into a side shade and concerning themselves about what they're going to wear for this and what they're going to wear for... And you, and you kind of go, listen, the casting director who's working on this really knows what they're... They're well aware of what a great makeup team can do and a great costume department can do. Just do your job and leave the hair and the makeup and the costumes to whoever's job that is yeah i just think sometimes we can get distracted by things that we think other people think are important and they're not they're just, they're just looking to the actors to do the acting and just to be truthful and authentic i mean i certainly hope the makeup team is on their a game when i rock up on set that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> you don't mess with the masterpiece matthew you don't mess with the masterpiece <laughs> oh you flatter me g you flatter me g so let's move on swiftly to um your musical <laughs> credits so yeah you, you have many top mt credits and that includes you know originating the role of erwin back in uh back or bach how would i pronounce that do you even know jay bach i think 
Bath, Erwin Bach <laughs> yeah. in Tina, the musical, as well as starring in Mamma Mia, Saturday Night Fever, and more. And due to the nature of musicals, songs, choreography, usually a ton of tech, does it get difficult the longer a run goes on to keep things fresh and truthful when you're restricted to what you can do differently, even if you wanted to do it? And if so, how do you cope with that over like a year long contract or possibly longer? I have never felt restricted because I've never, I mean, I, I suppose Mamma Mia would, was in, I think it was either the third or the fourth cast. So I've never been in a show like Les Mis or Phantom of the Opera where you're cast number 723, mm. where it's like set rigidly and the audience expect a certain performance from you. Although, again, I, I, and I've never been in one of those shows, so maybe I'm not even qualified to say this. Maybe I'm just talking out of my arse. And I've always worked with directors, fortunately, on musicals that encouraged us to find our own kind of take on it and to keep it fresh and to explore things and find new things that, that stop the piece from going stale. I mean, certainly, Philida Lloyd, who, ironically, directed Mamma Mia!, when I that was one of my very very first jobs and I was in the ensemble of Mamma Mia and then directed me in the last musical I did which was Tina and that was the first cast and it was very much going in and workshopping bits of script and then Katori Hall would go in and rewrite it and and it was very much put the thing together and it was a real collaborative process so I I don't think I've ever well no actually it's not I don't think I have never been in a musical and felt restricted or or bored or kind of oh I can't go out and do I think that's a myth that People who don't work in musicals think that that's what it must be like. Yeah. And certainly in my experience, it's not true. The actors are as present and on stage and as alive and living the text and the songs as actors that I've worked with on in the theatre where it's a, it's a play or anything that isn't a musical. Yeah, I think kind of MT actors have this kind of unfair rep that they just kind of learn it and then they go in and they do the same thing eight shows a week and they mm. don't kind of invest as much emotionally or in anything else as actors in, in plays. And it, I think it's a bit of a nonsense. It's exactly the same. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, I'm scared to ask this question, but sure. both of us know you pretty well. And I think it's fair to say you're someone who says it as it is. Um, and while bearing in mind, we'd like to return for a fourth season. For entertainment purposes only, do you have an industry hot take that you can share with us? And I'm so scared to hear the response. What What do you mean hot? What is a hot take? What does that phrase mean? Um, Like a Matt, you could probably describe it better than me. Well, it's what could arguably be a controversial opinion or something you believe in quite strongly that maybe others don't or whatever. Like, um, if we're oh, talking yeah. about... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, loads. Oh, God, I mean, go. And, oh, and probably the kind of... <laughs> probably the one that I say to loads of young actors are, when you walk into a room and you're the actor and you're with an audition panel and there are directors and choreographers and MDs and designers and producers and all the rest of it, just because they're sat on that side of the table doesn't mean that, that they know what they're doing. And if they make a decision that doesn't go your way, that's not a reflection on on you, your talent, your self-worth or anything else. That's just their decision that they've made. And let's just hope for their sake that they've made the right one. But more often than not, well, maybe maybe more often than not is is untrue. But certainly lots of times you, you watch things on Netflix and on TV and in the cinema or in the theatre and you go, oh my God, who made that decision? You need to be sacked. <laughs> And we are kind of led to believe that the, the people on that side of the table are these godlike figures who know exactly what they're doing and, and they always get it right. Rubbish. Everyone makes bad choices and bad decisions. And if the decision that they make doesn't go in our favour as actors, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, plenty of times, maybe it's self-protection or whatever, but there are loads of times where I've gone to meetings and gone, oh my God, they don't know what they're doing. They haven't got a clue. Um, and and there are times when I've been working on projects as a writer and I've been in, in the casting room and I'm having conversations where I have strongly thought things about projects that I have written and gone, no, I want someone like this to play this role. I want someone like this. And the director challenges me or an actor comes in and challenges me and I'm wrong. It gets to the point where I go, oh, I've got that so wrong. And for example, I had written a scene a couple of years ago for, and in the scene, a, a mother kind of is... She's made a promise to her child and then she has to go in and kind of renege on the promise. And I had written in the scene, oh, she goes in and she has this heart to heart with him and she cries and she knows she's letting him down. And there were two actors who taped for it and they didn't do, they did, they, they didn't do what I had written in the script. They didn't cry. So I was like, oh, well, she's not really good doing what I want her to do. 
And the director said to me, gee, because you're not a parent. Rule number one, being a parent, you don't cry in front of your child because the child then goes, oh, why is mommy and daddy crying? That's, that, that's not. And it was like, so you've got that wrong because she wouldn't cry in front of him because it would make her child feel unsafe and uncomfortable and worried that mommy's crying. And if mommy's crying, is everything okay? But again, I was convinced I was right. And if I was allowed to make the decision myself, I would have made the wrong decision. And I think there's a difference between, because I think with those types of things, actors are almost scared to have those thoughts, worried about um, thinking those things about people, you know, at the top of the industry being wrong, because they're almost worried that, you know, they'll hear your thoughts and they're never going to cast you if you disagree with that. It's, it's just not relevant. You're allowed to have these feelings. I think there's a difference between thinking them and then going on Twitter and absolutely slating someone for no reason. But on the whole, I think, you know, you're quite right to be able to just feel those things. It's, it's OK to challenge people that think that, you know, they're making the right calls. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, you can take the, the, the people at the top of the industry, like the best actors and the best directors and writers in Hollywood have made bad films. Everyone gets it wrong sometimes. And if you go in and you audition for a role that you're convinced that you're so right for, and that you know that you would bring something special to it and something unique, and it doesn't go your way, that doesn't mean that you're deluded or you've got an, a, an inflated sense of ego or work. You just go, okay. I hope they've made the right decision because I think I would have been the right decision and I still stand by that. And just because it didn't go my way doesn't mean that I'm not talented or that I'm deluded or or any of those things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this all the time, that every single person who's never given me a job has got it wrong. Of course, and I'm not saying that at all. But there's there's still humans like us and, and sometimes people get it wrong. 100%. And we, and we as actors can't punish ourselves for having this idea that, that casting directors are always right producers are always right and, and directors and writers are always right because sometimes they're not hi we're selftape.co.uk but uh, don't forget the hyphen that's self-tape.co.uk it's a bit of a mouthful but it's a mouthful worth chewing on uh, anyway, as the name suggests, we do self-tapes for actors in London. Maybe you've run out of time. Maybe you have kids. Perhaps you can't find a reader. Or, let's face it, you could just be a little bit shit at setting everything up. Well, that's where we come in. But it's not all we offer. No, we also shoot showreels for actors, too. Custom showreel scenes shot from scratch to show casting directors and agents exactly what you can do. Well, that is, if they can be bothered to watch. Any In The Room listeners get 10% off all of our services just by quoting In The Room. So get in touch and visit www.selftape.co.uk. Or don't, it's completely up to you. But whatever you do, do, don't forget the hyphen, self hyphen to, ah, you get it. We'd love to talk about Hollyoaks. So um, in Hollyoaks, you played the role of Chris Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm saying the theme tune, you'll probably get stung for a royalty fee. Yeah, I was about to say, you're going to get done for copyright there, Jared. Thanks yeah. for that. <laughs> so you played the role of Chris between 2006 and 2010, and then you've gone on to also write episodes for the show. Um, <laughs> like most soaps... Hollyoaks often gets criticised for the acting and the writing without consideration that that is a stylistic choice. So can you explain the differences between your approach when working on Hollyoaks as an actor and writer in comparison to, example, the period dramas we mentioned earlier or a feature film? I think my process is exactly the same. The difference is that I'm, I'm sure it's still the same. I know that Hollyoaks is still five episodes a week. I'm not quite sure what Emmerdale and... Corey and EastEnders are at the minute but it's time Hollyoaks going out five times a week is two and a half hours of telly that's a feature film yeah so even though my process might be exactly the same I get the scripts and I'll, and I'll go through it and figure out everything that I'm doing and also jump because you shoot it all out of sequence within like five or six weeks is that there just is not the time to explore things rehearse things properly the way we would if it was a theater job or or film or drama where you've got like 10 weeks to shoot four episodes so everyone has to be on their a game and it's really really hard it is the hardest job i've ever done being in hollyoaks because it is waking up at half five in the morning being in makeup for quarter past six um shooting until seven o'clock that night 
going home, reading scripts that you're going to shoot in four or five weeks time. So you know where the character has to end up then learning lines that you're, that you're shooting next week, refreshing lines that you're shooting tomorrow, amendments that you get in the makeup chair to say, Oh, the scene that you thought you were shooting in an hour that's changed. And it's, it's really, really hard. And I think if you can, if you can do a show like EastEnders, Corey, Hollyoaks, Doctors, Emmerdale, any of those things that work at that pace as an actor, a writer, or a director, actually anyone, if you can work on a show that has to produce that much content in that limited amount of time and you can do your job really well under those conditions, you could probably do your job really well anywhere. Because that's what's expected of you is mental. And you either sink or swim. There's no time to be like taking people by the hand and going, okay, let's explore why this didn't work and let's see may have made. It's like step up or move. Because the, the train the train has to be on channel four, has to arrive at channel four at half six every night. And if you're standing in the way of it, you're going to get run over. Because there's no time for anyone who is not pulling their weight and, and doing their job to the best of their ability. It's really hard. And, and, and again, it's unfair, the flack that people, especially in this country, get from other people in the industry who kind of go, oh yeah, but you've, you've done a soap, can you really act? That's just, that's just like nonsense. I think it's something really important to address on on that subject. That Hollyoaks is very much the main soap that people um, would slate the acting, um, certainly from what I've heard. But if you look at much of the cast on Hollyoaks over the last sort of 10, 15 years, they have gone on to have the biggest careers. You've got like Natalie in Game of Thrones. Um, quite a few of them have gone to Hollywood. They're, they're doing the best out of all them kind of soaps. So I don't want to say that it's a kind of it's a fair thing to say because I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's kind. But mm. given the age of the cast, for example, if you were to take the, the average age of the actor on EastEnders or Corey or Emmerdale, they're normally someone in their like 30s, 40s, 50s with a wealth of experience behind them. These are actors who know what they're doing, right? You take the average age of, of a cast member in Hollyoaks and more often than not, it's their first job. And everyone is everyone makes mistakes, and learn as they go on their first job. So, of course, you're watching, especially in scenes where it's being led by 15, 16, 17-year-olds who haven't yet gone to drama school. This is their first job, and they're literally being plucked out of school and thrown, as I said, into this machine that is rattling along at such a pace. It's really, really hard. So what can often happen is you're kind of watching these kids try their absolute best and going, yeah, but you're not as good actors as maybe people as like Steve McFadden or... Letitia Dean or someone who's been in EastEnders for like years and like has this skill down to a T and knows exactly what they're doing. And you kind of compare the kids in Hollyoaks and you go, okay, you don't quite know what you're doing yet, but you're 15. But then what happens is once, once they survive that show, they then go on and do like amazing things because they survived working at that speed under those conditions, single camera, learning the lines the volume of lines so well and and just delivering that again and that's the test if you can survive in a show like that for two or three years you can survive any working on any show you can <laughs> certainly survive on a feature film where you've got as much time as you want to sit and have a gossip about the trauma that your character went through possibly when they were two or three and why that might affect the choice i mean you don't have the time to do all of that working on a soap so if you can deliver good work on a soap that kind of trains you up to be and and lots of the cast on Hollyoaks will say that because they started working on that show when they were so young that that was their drama school and actually when we all go to drama school for the first year we all make those mistakes but we make them in a safe environment where we're not being judged often those kids are making them on national tv and people go, oh my god you're crap and you kind of go maybe they are Maybe they are a bit crap, but this is someone doing this for the first time and they're doing it for, to the best of their ability and learning. Mm. Matt, did you have a question? Just the nature of it because the cast is so young. Yeah, I think, I think Jared sort of sort of answered it in a way. And I think I, I was just mm. sort of adding a note on the end before you ask the next question, Christian, is the fact that I think while a lot of people's intentions are really good now and a lot of actors and their knowledge of soaps is a lot better, but I think when you get the odd actor that is publicly slating performances in soaps, if you offered them a role on that soap, they would bite your hand off to do it. <laughs> and there's an irony there. And I think sometimes, and I think jealousy can inherently come as an actor. If any actor says they don't get jealous, 
it's because they can't even admit it to themselves. So I think mm. some people express that jealousy by slating people on a show that, yes, as you say, Jared, might have some faults in it, especially by the age of the actor and the pace of the production. But if you offered that job to that person, they would snap your arm off for it and either mm. sink or swim and face the same difficulties that you've mentioned. But yeah, you carry yeah. on, Christian. Next question. Let's go. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that point. But also, like, because I'm just aware that, like, I did, again, because maybe I'm being, like, sharing too much. Like, it, Hollyoaks was the first job that I did on screen. And I can't watch some of, like, and I remember for the first nine months going home and just watching it going, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, stop doing that, stop doing that, you blink too much, you've got this little habit that you're doing, that's rubbish, that's rubbish. I mean, I was shocking, shocking for at least nine months until I really, really knew what I was doing. But I had never been in front of a camera, either in a professional environment and certainly not in college. So no mm. one, I was literally on screen making rookie mistakes. And this was before Netflix and before Amazon, like when we only had the choice of like four or five channels. And I was terrible, but I have to be kind to myself and go, of course you were terrible. You didn't know what you were doing. And that's kind of, if you don't, no matter what it is, if it's baking a cake or, or acting on screen or building a, a, sh a garden shed if you don't know what you're doing you're going to make mistakes along the way and go oh God, i need to go back and fix that I, I, I can't do it like that that doesn't work and it's exactly the same so when i say normally the cast of Hollyoaks gets slated for it and there might be a bit of truth in it i include myself in that because i watch myself in it and went, oh my god you're shockingly bad because at the time i didn't know what i was doing yeah i was young, I was young and innocent and naive <laughs> oh, yeah, moving swiftly on from that. <laughs> Were you ever young and innocent and naive? <laughs> Gee, I'd love to move on to talk a bit more about your work as a writer. Uh, what was your motivation behind wanting to write, and how did you go about making those initial steps, um, securing rep, first few writing credits, etc.? Whenever I was working on a project, I've always found myself kind of gravitating towards the writer. All of the writers that I worked with on Hollyoaks, I was I had a hundred questions for them, and I worked with Joe Penhall on a production of his play Blue Orange, and I kind of hung off every word that he said when he was in the rehearsal room. And Jonathan Harvey worked very closely with us when we were doing his play Beautiful Thing, and I've always been fascinated by writers and scripts, and I I always felt that when we are sent scripts from our agents that we make a judgment on them and go, either this script's brilliant or this one's crap. But I had no idea what made them brilliant or crap. And I certainly couldn't do it. So I, I felt like Louis Walsh sitting on the panel of The X Factor going, oh, you're brilliant and you're rubbish. But I, I had no idea what made them brilliant or rubbish. And I certainly couldn't get up there and do it myself. So that kind of played on my mind for a bit. And then I enrolled at the New York Film Academy and I went and studied screenwriting there. And when I finished my course and realized that a lot of stuff I that we covered on the course was stuff I'd already picked up as an actor. So the knowledge was in there, but I didn't, I didn't realize why it was important. So I kind of spent the whole course with instructors going, okay, you know, this thing and, and me going, oh yeah, I've seen this in scripts a hundred times. This is important. And this is, this is why. And every good story has to have this. And every good story has to have this. And I remember going, oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it all suddenly made sense. So when I finished the course armed with all this new knowledge and I thought I, I understood everything, I approached Brian Kirkwood, who was the executive producer on Hollyoaks, who cast me as Chris, who'd then left and gone off and done other projects. And then after I left, he then came back and I sent him this kind of cheeky little email saying, Brian, I'd really love to come back and work on the show. Is there any chance I can have a meeting with you? And because he created the role of Chris and Chris is very dear to his heart, of course he took the meeting. He was like, oh my God we're gonna have Chris back in the show so I went up to Liverpool and I and I knew I had him for an hour and we chatted about everything he was like so you want to come back you want to work on the show again brilliant when do you want to start and I was like immediately and he's like oh everyone and I said but I don't want to play Chris and the room kind of went silent and he went well who do you want to play then and I, went, I don't want to play anyone I want to join the writing team and Brian kind of went oh can you write and I said, well, I think so. And I know this show, like the back of my, I, I, I know all the characters in this show. So I kind of thought, well, if I can't write this, a show that I've got so much knowledge of from being in it for so long, then, then I can't write anything. So Brian kind of put me through the audition process that writers go through, which is writing trial scripts and getting notes from line producers and producers, then turning the notes around in the realistic amount of time that you get to see if you can survive turning out scripts at that speed. And then I joined the team and rode on Hollyoaks for a while. And then 
started developing and working on my own stuff. And I wrote one project for an actor friend of mine that very quickly, because of who she is, was being read by like important people. And and I remember ringing my acting agent and saying, um, someone from ITV who's quite important is going to ring you about this project that I've written. And she was like, well, I, what are they going to ring me for? And I was like, well, who else are they going to ring? My mom. <laughs> um, so she then took the script to the lit department of the agency that looks after me. And they had a read of it. And they agreed to kind of look after that phone call and negotiate all the things that were going to happen with that project. And then the relationship kind of grew. And the person who I was dealing with then read other things that I'd written and then sent them out to other production companies and things started to kind of pick up pace. And then we started shooting a short film that I'd written called Just Johnny. And it just kind of naturally and organically fell into place. And I'm ridiculously lucky for how that happened. It's not the normal route. Yeah, I mean, I would be lying if I said that I kind of signing with my agent and securing rep as a writer was something that I had even planned on doing. It just kind of happened. And I'm very lucky for the way it panned out because otherwise I'd, I'd, I'm, I'm not quite sure how you would have done it when at that time I had a load of scripts that I'd written, but not, nothing had nothing had been made yet. So so I, I'm, I don't actually know what the process would be. Obviously, as an actor, we send like show reels and all, all that stuff. So I don't know, but I'm very, very lucky to like for it to work, have worked out the way it did. Well, you mentioned earlier, Jared, when you spoke about the start of your career that, you know, you coming from the background that you did, that you didn't have, you know, a director as a dad, a writer as a mum, or any of those mm-hmm. advantages. But what you did have was the industry savviness later on in your career to realize you had a way in and you used it. And that's just simply what you should do, right? If you have that unfair advantage, you've got that there, you got to use it and you did brilliantly and that's that's what set you up it was a really clever business move and i think people underestimate thinking like a businessman in this career if you have the opportunities of course it's very easy to say that you had the opportunity that you earned but some people be like well i can't make those moves i don't do you know what i mean so i understand how it comes from certain levels but you approach that like a businessman and it played out really well but i would argue that that it's the total opposite because i what I think we forget, especially especially at the minute where everyone's obsessed with social media and collaborating and you do this for me and I'll do that. And lots of the opportunities that I have been very fortunate to been given have come from people that I that I've worked with and that I got on really, really, really well with. And that I've just gone, listen, can you help me? Can you help me do something? And there's never been anything in it for them. And, and I think is kind of, we're kind of teaching ourselves at the minute that we do need to approach things as like, oh, from a business point of view and go, well, I'm going to offer you this opportunity that if, and you'll get this out of it and I'll get this out of it. And and I think sometimes it's okay to just say, listen, we worked with each other. We got on really well. You know, you know that, I, that I'm a hard worker. You know that I'm a team player and all the rest of it. I'd really quite like to do this and you can help me. Can you help me? And more often than not, people will go, yeah, because why would they not? Most think- people inherently are nice people and most people will help someone else if they just go I mean I think often we get so wrapped up in our own words and our own problems and all the rest of it but if someone actually just turns around and goes Matt can you do me a favor can you help me do this because I'm having real difficulty with it and I know that for whatever reason to you it's an email or a text message or whatever you'll probably go oh yeah mate of course why did you not ask me last week I'll do it now go done I think and also when when you're like me um (laughs) and and you've kind of uh-huh. I'm the tightest bastard you'll ever meet in your life, man. No. I, saw, I saw Smith's face doing this as you're saying that, like, <laughs> as long as there's five pounds in it for me, then we'll go <laughs> No, but it's like... And, no, you're right, and also, you're right. What, what then happens is when you're, when you're someone like me who has been, I don't know what you call it, cheeky enough, whatever, to, to just to bare face just ask someone for help. And I couldn't count the amount of people that have gone... Yeah, of course, of course I'll do that for you. Yeah, not a problem. But then when you get further down the path and younger actors who I've worked with or people who want to write or do whatever, ask you for a favor, you go, yeah, of course I will. Mm. Because so many people have done me favors that have hugely benefited me and helped me when they didn't have to. Like for example, right? And again, you turn you turn around and because I, cause I just asked him because I loved his work. When I was writing Just Johnny and I was kind of going, oh my God, is this any good or is this shit? I needed someone who I really, really respected to read it and tell me whether or not it was good or, or shit. And, and I'm not talking one of my best mates or a teacher. So I sent an email to Russell T. Davis and I was like, listen, I'm writing this story and this short film. I think you're amazing. Would you read it for me and tell me if you think I'm wasting my time? And he did. 
He didn't have to. And he sent me a really encouraging email afterwards. And he was like, you have to tell this story. You have to overcome the many obstacles you're going to reach trying to get this thing made. But you have, you cannot give up. You have to get it made. And you have to do it. My relationship with Russell is I am a fan of his. We're not, I, I like to think now that I kind of owe him a huge lot. And I kind of think of him as like this person who I know, but we're not, we're not best friends. He's, he's just someone who I respect and admire. And I went, can you do me a favor and read this? It'll take you 20 minutes. And he could have, he could just went, who are you? But he didn't. <laughs> he read it and he sent me a, a really encouraging email and, and a couple of his thoughts. And, and what that did for me was huge. And I'm sure if I, if Russell ever heard this or if I told him he would go, oh, come on, uh, like I read it over a coffee, it took me 50, it was nothing. To him, it was nothing. To me, it was monumental. Yeah, it's, I, it's literally, it's pass it on. Well, let's, so let's dial in on this, me Johnny. to do something. Yeah. Uh, because, My you know, it's, it's a, so it's about a young boy who wants to wear a dress to his Holy Communion and has been, mm-hmm. it's a film that's been shown at film festivals worldwide. It's won multiple awards. So clearly that email from Russell you know, at least helped in that motivation to get that done. And you did get it done. And you've clearly written a spectacular short film. You know, it's it's one best short film at that. I want to say, I'm going to, I get all the difficult to pronounce words. Giffoni. Giffoni. Seattle yeah, and Providence Children's Film Festival. And I think I, in the time since I wrote these questions, you, did it also go, is it the Belfast Fest in Film Festival or something like that? We're the most in recent Belfast one? next month. Yeah, the Belfast yeah. Film Festival. Fantastic. And... How important do you think it is for up-and-coming writers to have a successful short film? And what are your tips on writing a short film? Or does it vary too much from whenever you're writing a script? Is the process similar, different? As a writer, I think a successful short film is a script. If you've got it finished, it's successful. As in, the script. Just Johnny is a great film. But, but I'm not responsible for making it a great film. Like, I had the most incredible producer on it. Shauna Shivers, Micah Tamney, who, who took the script and said to me one night, who would you like to direct it? And the first name I gave her, Terry Lone, who's a director that, again, I have long admired. I'd never met him. I didn't know him. Um, and I said, if I could pick anyone in the world, it would be Terry Lone. And she's like, yeah, but he directs feature films for working title. And like, he's big time. He's not going to direct a 20 minute short. And I was like, well, can we just ask him? Because like the worst he can say is, no, I'm not interested. And that's always been my kind of thing. Just ask, because... If someone doesn't want to do something, they'll say no. They're not going to be pressured into doing it if they don't want to do it. So we asked Terry and then we asked all the cast and we had the most insane production team. And all of their talent and knowledge and skill, the the director, the designer, the DOP, the cast, everyone makes a brilliant film. So what I'm responsible for is the little kind of seed at the start of it. And I don't think any kind of... I don't think, again, but maybe I'm not qualified to answer this because I'm not an agent or a producer or or any of those people. I would like to think that any agent or producer or commissioner worth their weight and salt would be able to read a script and know if the writer was any good, equally as well as watch the finished product and go, yes, okay, I did write just Johnny, of course I did. But what they're watching is a small city's worth of people's talent that Mm. makes it a great film. So I would argue that having the finished film where they can watch it on the internet or in a cinema or at a screening or wherever, isn't that important? Because any any person worth their weight in salt should be able to read your work, the script, and know what you're about just from that. So I wouldn't think that you have to go, oh, yeah, but it has, it, I, I've written my great film, and but it's not made, so therefore my work is worthless. It is nonsense. I think... But what do yeah. I know? <laughs> and again, as you, and that's where you just have to go. Like you can listen to lots of people, but who, does everyone really know what they're talking about? We're all just Not winging all it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, so my honest answer is Matthew. I don't really know, mm. but I don't think so. Yeah. I think you should be able to send a great agent a script, and they're able to read it and go, "Yeah, this has got something in it." Absolutely. Going, oh my god, I can't send them the script because it's never been made. I, do, I don't think matters. Actually, I would prepare. I would uh, on this. I would. I would go. It, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, for all the listeners, please go check out Just Johnny because it's incredible. We went to that Amsterdam Film Festival together, and it and it won there, didn't it? So it's an incredible piece of work. So, G, another strand. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to get that clip. It was a compliment from Christian. <laughs> they come occasionally, <laughs> but leap year. <laughs> but um, yeah, another strand of your work. Uh, G is acting coaching 
And uh, having been associated at GSA, you now work independently on anything and everything that an actor might need from audition prep to drama school auditions and more. And I know me and you have worked on some tapes together when they occasionally come twice a year. (laughs) But we'd love to hear more about your self-tape and audition prep. And while it's probably dependent on the piece that you have in front of you, how do you approach prepping a client of yours for a tape or a in-the-room audition? Again, the facet, the thing that I've learned from doing this is that it doesn't actually vary on what the project is because I'm not, I don't think of myself as a teacher. It is I'm literally coaching people through self tapes, and more often than not, it's that no focus on what your job is. You're being distracted by other things that are none of your business. You've got this script, and you have to understand what the character wants, what their purpose is in this story, and what your purpose is as an actor within this machine and your job is to serve the script especially in the self-tape scenario where more often than not we don't get notes or a conversation with the director the way you would if you were in a room you go okay so what is it you kind of want me to do if if you're kind of you've just got the scene and you're taping it it's about mining this for as much information and clues that you've got and it's just about no matter if it's like for example yesterday i was coaching an actress who's was self-taping for a shakespeare play and it's exactly the same as coaching someone who is auditioning for a big HBO 12-part telly epic. It's be truthful. What is really going on in, in this scene? What does she really, really want? What is she really talking about? And if she doesn't get what she wants, how's the story going to pan out? And again, it's mostly passing on to younger actors and actors who I've worked with at different drama schools. Stuff that I wish I knew when I was younger and starting out and going, oh my God, gee, but I don't have this and uh, this, and you got, that's not important. <laughs> I genuinely don't think a casting director or a writer or a producer or whoever is going to care that your mum's got a photograph of the holidays on the back of the wall that when you take it off, it's got a, you know, when you take a picture frame off the wall and it like leaves the line of dust mm. and they go, oh my God, oh my God. And it's like, no one gives a shit. Yeah. We're watching you to see if you can serve this story and do your job well. That's it. And again, we're led to believe that you need fancy lights and expensive cameras and all of these and all of these things. And no, and the coaching that I do with mostly younger actors at the start of their career, it's going to no, forget all that. You just do your job to the best of your ability because that's what they're looking at. So that's the kind of one aspect of it, and the other aspect of it is to kind of coach actors in a way that when they're taping for something, that no matter what it is, that there's a huge amount of them present in the tape and the audition so that even if they are not right for the role that they're auditioning for they're not lost so that someone watching it could go okay okay so matthew's taping for this or i've got it i've brought him in for the wrong i've got it wrong brought him in for the wrong role because he's not right for it but what i can see which is the thing that makes matt matt and that's really useful in this role and again it comes back to the authenticity we are kind of taught that we need to be this and we need to transform into this and transform into that and and we don't i think it's it's about keeping as much truth and realness as possible and only adjusting the little things that need adjusted so that what you're not watching is someone doing a whole load of acting because more often than not the whole load of acting will probably be shine because it's not real do you know what i mean and it's when you only adjust and manipulate and play with the things that need the app that the script absolutely demands and everything else is real and naturalistic and true and authentic then that's suddenly when it becomes really good so i coach a lot of actors that more often i'm going why are you doing that for oh because it's a period drama yeah well that's crap stop doing that um, and then they go, really? And I was like, yeah, the character do- the character doesn't know. Like people walking around in the early 1900s didn't go, I'm in a period drama, so I'm going to walk and talk like this. Like, that- <laughs> no, just get in the head of the of the character and just play the thought, pro- not play the thought, pro- just think what they're thinking, go through what they're going through and just mostly stop acting. Totally the same for Shakespeare as well. I think some people go, oh, I'm speaking Shakespeare's lines here i need to talk shakespeare when actually you are speaking as romeo you romeo is saying something and all these clever references that shakespeare's got in those are actually romeo's references those are what romeo is pulled in on and you just need to say it as that rather than going oh i need to hit the meter here i know some of that is important in shakespeare it's probably an awful example from me but um do you know what i mean even if the language makes you want to do more just you know nail down into those those little moments i really like that so if anyone has any auditions or things going up, 
go see Jared. We're posting about him all the time. He's on social incredible. Media. He's, he's not paying us enough of it for now, but it doesn't matter. He's given Smith a little branded hat there from their gym classes. They're best buds. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. So, Jared, we're coming to the end of our podcast. We're going to finish up with our rapid fire question section. Okay. This has been an overhang from series two. We've kept it in. It's 10 really quick industry-related questions that we haven't sent you in advance, and we right, would like you to answer on. them in a sentence <laughs> or less. So, Jared okay. McCarthy, are you ready for our rapid fire? Yes. Here we go. Christian, do you want to start us off? What makes a good actor? Truth. Theatre or cinema? Cinema. Biggest industry pet peeve? People in TV dramas with acting with cups that obviously have got nothing in them. Oh, what? Drive <laughs> I hate it. And now you, you know you watch it in mind of times. Copter. Why don't we just go over and say to her? Rah, 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 and I was like, because in real life that's what happens, right? Like you would be scalded with hot coffee. Like I hear it, and it's really, really weird because whenever I'm on a set and they go, "Oh, Jared, your character's got a cup of tea," and I was like, "Can you make? Can I have a, a, a hot?" And the, and the design department will always go, "What a real one." And I was like, yeah, because you actually hold a, a hot cup of coffee or tea totally different than when you do when it's cold or it's empty. Now, and you're watching, you're sitting there a hundred times, people waving around things that have got nothing in them. That's my pet peeve. We were doing well with Rapid Fire up until that point, weren't we, G? Anyway. I know, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Should everyone listen to the In The Room podcast? I mean, I'm not going to lie, I've never listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on, yeah, comedy or drama? I, mean, I think so. I think everyone should listen to this one. <laughs> At least. Gee. Comedy or drama? Um, drama? A skill every actor should have. Something other than acting. Your greatest strength? My greatest strength? I don't think I'm, I'm afraid of trying things. Biggest weakness? A lot of the times I make decisions too quickly and I get it wrong because I haven't spent the right amount of time thinking about it. Self-tape or in-the-room audition? Oh, that's a tough one. I think it really depends on the actor. I personally prefer, because I get nervous, going into a room and meeting people and going, oh my God, I'm in a room with this person I really respect and admire and I want them to like me. And that drags me into a place that I shouldn't be in because I'm there to do a job. And I, and I find that I can do the job better when I'm not thinking about all of that stuff. It's just me and the script and I'm not concerned about who the director is and this casting director cast this, this and this and suddenly I'm in a room with them. And So for me, self-tape. The title of your autobiography. Who's going to read that? That's a great <laughs> title. We'll do that. <laughs> Who's going to read that? <laughs> and on yeah, that note... let's go with that. <laughs> and on that note, G, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure to welcome you into the room today. It's certainly been fun. We've learned a lot. It's been great talking to you. And we'll see it's you very soon. It's been great to be here, guys. Thank you. Thank you.